Good morning and welcome to the Trusted CI webinar for December 7th, uh, 2020. I'm your host, Jeanette Dopheide. Trusted CI is the NSF Center, uh, Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, and these webinars are part of its mission to deliver high-quality, actionable guidance regarding cybersecurity to the NSF community. More information about Trusted CI can be found at trustedci.org. Today's topic is a panel hosted by the Trusted Trustworthy Data Working Group to discuss tools, standards, community practices, um, and other things for trustworthy scientific data sharing. Our panel is led by Trusted CI Deputy Director Jim Basney. And we have a great group of guests that will introduce themselves once we get started. Uh, before we begin, I have a few things to remind everyone about. Uh, first, this presentation is being recorded. Um, participants are welcome to ask questions um, during the session, but we also are planning on having time for questions for the, the attendees as well. So. Um, Jim will help guide that uh, portion of the presentation. And um, let's get started. Jim, welcome. Thanks, Jeanette. Hi, everyone. And um, so if we move on to the next slide, we'll see um, the, our uh, distinguished panelists listed with their affiliations. So um, I'm really pleased to have uh, Sandra, Robert, and Rebecca join us today. Sandra from the University of Notre Dame, Robert from NIST, and Rebecca from Research Data Alliance US. And so. The way this panel is going to work is that uh, the four of us will give some introductory remarks and then we'll leave the bulk of the time for discussion. And um, so I will act as panel moderator. I have some questions for the panelists. Um, I expect the panelists will also have some good questions for each other, but I hope also that um, you attendees will have some questions for the panel. So uh, please be bold and ask your questions in the chat and then um, we'll try and do the Zoom magic to unmute you and, and so that you can ask the questions directly of the, of the panel. And so without further ado, let's, let's begin our introductory remarks. And so the next slide will have some um, introduction to the Trustworthy Data Working Group that I've been chairing over the past year. And so you see uh, listed Alongside me, many of the members of the working group who contributed to our most recent report, uh, guidance report on uh, management of trustworthy scientific data. And, and you see uh, affiliations of uh, many of the participants. Uh, so we've had uh, a really nice uh, broad participation in this trustworthy, um, uh, trustworthy data working group from um, uh, not just Trusted CI, but, but other NSF projects listed below. And um, uh, I'll uh, also please note the homepage for our working group where our materials are located. So on the next slide, I will give a, a short summary of our survey report. So the, the working group conducted a survey in April and May of this year, and we received 111 survey responses. And you see the, the breakdown of who responded to the survey over on the right there. And so we did um, get uh, a lot of good responses from research computing facilitators and infrastructure providers and operators, along with science users, science data users, scientific data creators, um, et cetera. And so some findings from our analysis of the survey responses. One was that um, our, a common definition of trustworthiness for scientific data was somewhat elusive, although see in that second bar graph, integrity and reproducibility were the most commonly selected attributes that were important for trustworthy data. Uh, about 90% of the respondents agreed that trustworthiness of scientific data is important. Though interestingly, only 
felt that trustworthiness was part of their job duties. And um, so I think we, uh, one topic we could discuss as a panel is uh, you know, who, who's responsible for the trustworthiness of scientific data. Uh, we had some um, open-ended questions and in terms of concerns about trustworthiness of scientific data, some concerns that were indicated in our response were uh, uh, impact on scientific results, reputational risks, and the generally how um, trustworthiness of data impacts the integrity of the scientific process. We also asked a question about uh, interest in guidance about trustworthiness, uh, trustworthy management of scientific data. And uh, in general, the respondents were open to um, uh, additional guidance, uh, especially guidance about where to start and how to prioritize different aspects of data trustworthiness, because of course there's a lot of guidance out there. And um, so we don't, we don't want just to add to the, uh, you know, all the overwhelming amount of guidance, but um, give the, the researchers and the, and the broader community um, a way to navigate that guidance. And so there's the DOI for our full report on the survey results, which you can also find on our homepage. And then on the next slide is um, the key findings from our guidance report. So uh, since we, we did have that response that people were interested in guidance, we, we thought about what guidance to provide to the different stakeholders that responded to our survey. So scientific data users, data providers, infrastructure providers, research facilitators, and also security and compliance professionals. And how to help them address barriers to trustworthiness of scientific data that can include conflicts between security and reproducibilities. For example, applying software patches can change the version of the software you're using and may lead to challenges reproducing scientific results. Um, accidents can disrupt your scientific data. Uh, lack of funding and incentives can make it difficult to implement a lot of you know, best practices around uh, data trustworthiness. And also the original quality of the data that you collect can impact the, the overall um, uh, trustworthiness of the data. Uh, we found in our survey real good tools for providing your data in a high availability manner so that the integrity of the data is uh, well-maintained and the authorization, the access controls around um, uh, uh, being able to um, access the data can be implemented. So we, we found good coverage there, uh, but we also found a need for stronger support around managing data authenticity, confidentiality, and uh, reproducibility. And I think we'll, we'll hear from our panelists on, on some of those topics. Uh, also in our guidance report, we talk about how to communicate the trustworthiness of your data. And uh, two aspects that are really key there are the metadata associated with your data that can um, communicate the, the provenance of the data and also the, how to communicate the policies and other trustworthy um, aspects of the data repository holding the data. And that can include certifications around the um, uh, around the practices of that data repository. So there's the DOI for that guidance report. And again, the, um, the URL for our working group that has those two reports and, and other materials from the group. And so um, that's my quick overview. And now I'll turn over to our next panelist, Sandra, to give us some intro remarks. Thank you. Yeah, I'm Sandra Gazing. I'm from the University of Notre Dame. I'm part of the 
Center for Research Computing and part of the Science Gateways Community Institute and Prescuti, the Preservation Quality Tool Project. So that will be the main topic of my talk. And um, I'm also um, a co-PI on the US Research Software Sustainability Institute and um, on the steering committee for the US Research Software Engineering Association. And I, I lead a working an interest group at RDA. So Rebecca later will talk more about RDA. So I will make that part short. Um, and I mentioned all these, these projects because they have some commonalities. They all have to really work. Oh, it, it was fine. <laughs> Go to the next slide. Yes. <laughs> um, they have commonalities. So it, it's about that data sharing. It's um, we need to create data in research because we need to find data again um, to also show results, to publish the results, to know the provenance and of course also security. So there are a couple of different um, standards like HIPAA for health data of our student data. Um, so it's really important to have a sharing and preservation ecosystem and the user is in the middle of it. So if we look at these examples, um, Hotel, Hub Zero, and OSF are science gateways, or we call them also virtual research environments or virtual labs. So virtual research environments are often used as a term in Europe and virtual labs in Australia. And what they deliver is um, you can share data there. You can share projects. You, you can have... Um, really also something like starting of simulations. So that is the definition of science gateways, how we look at it. Next slide. And to, but, but the goal of science gateways is really to share, to publish, to yeah, do research, to make research easier for researchers. And repositories have a different goal. So they're really there to, to have in the long-term access to the data in the best way, in a curated way with a lot of metadata already. And you see here examples like Zenodo, GitLab, Fixture, I'm sure you heard about it. Um, these are all um, partner systems we are working in Prescuity already with. Next slide. And there are also services. So you might have heard about SciGraph for enhancing keywords our fair sharing org or fair shake cloud. So they're really implementing already suggestions how to, how to make data more fair. And Prescuti is work, working with these services and using them to improve the quality of data and information of research data. And Easy is also a fantastic project that's an emulation service. So you, you might have the situation, for example, you have Excel spreadsheets from 20 years ago. So you cannot open them anymore because you don't have access to the software anymore. And Easy has solutions for this kind of problem. So they, they created really the emulation services. And if you send a data, your data there, they bring you back whether they have already a service for it to show you the data and you can save it in, in a format that you can use on your own computer or um, yes, they, they bring back that this might be not a service they have at the moment for this format, but you can contact them. Next slide. And Prescuti 
is in the middle of this, all the stakeholders and projects. So it's a boilerplate to connect them all because so users, let's say the researchers like to work in their science gateways. Of course, a lot of researchers also see that they have the need for repositories to save and store their data in the long run and to parade it. So how to get it really in a nice way, in a fluent way in the different system and PressQT is an API and uh, offer services to connect all these different systems. And in the systems, then you, you use them, the services in the background. Next slide. So the PressQT project has a couple of different stakeholders, like the domain researchers, data curators, repository managers, librarians, software developers, Workflow tool developers, the linked data community, and journals. And I just read this really from, from the graphic because we had a survey at the beginning of the conceptualization of the project, and 1,740 people answered the survey what they think, what they need to increase yeah, data and information, to, and also about trustworthy data. And then we we developed the concept for PressQT and implemented it. So it's not a standalone solution. The partner systems and services can easily be integrated via standard APIs. So we are using RESTful APIs. It's a user-centered open design and collaborative development. So it's, it's everything is in GitHub. Everyone can contribute. We have every two weeks user meetings where, where you can contribute with your ideas and um, also suggest further tools for, for PressQT. So we have um, keyword enhancements. We have the fair testing, the connection to the fair testing tools. We check fixity with, with the transfer between different systems. And if you look at the graphic, we are here. We are at the moment at the QA testing phase. And we are happy, everyone who wants to try our services, we have a demo UI where you can see what, what the PressQT services are capable of. And the next step is really also to show the users always the JSON um, information because in, and that comes back to the trustworthiness. Every step that has been done by a PressQT is also recorded in a JSON file. That means if you transfer one file to another system, it will be the metadata will be transferred with the file. Or if you enhance the keywords, if you do the fair testing, everything will be safe with it. And that goes back to the aspect of provenance, but also um, to trustworthiness in a way to see where the data comes from. And not only where it comes from, but what additional metadata was added via the PressQT services. And um, that's, that's for, from me for the moment. Okay, so um, I'm Bob Hanisch. I'm the director of the Office of Data and Informatics at, uh, at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So next slide, please. One thing I'll talk about in terms of uh, trustworthiness of data is a collection of data products that we host in my group at NIST called Standard Reference Data. 
these are the most highly reviewed and vetted data products that we produce at NIST. And this data collection was started uh, officially in 1968 when Congress passed the Standard Reference Data Act. And this uh, suggested that the Department of Commerce, of which NIST is a, is a, a bureau, should uh, establish this collection of data in order to um, support US industry and research with data that was highly trusted. We now have some 65 databases, most of which are freely available, but others uh, actually one has to either subscribe or pay, pay an access fee. And that was um, kind of a shock to me when I came to NIST six and a half years ago that we should have government agencies uh, providing data on a cost basis. But basically it is to recover cost of maintenance and distribution of the data. We sell around 6,000 units of these databases uh, per year, uh, mostly as downloads, but also we have agreements with uh, distributors and vendors of instrumentation who embed these databases into their instrumentation. And the best known case of that is our mass spectro library, which uh, gets embedded in essentially all vendors mass spec devices uh, that are on the market. Our most uh, widely used, uh, no, not yet, um, go back there, yeah. Our most widely used um, database is our chemistry web book, which uh, gets as much as 2 million views a month. It's used widely uh, by educators and students uh, and researchers around the world. But we also have uh, somewhat more esoteric data, such as this uh, X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy database that still gets as many as 300,000 views a month. Um, do I wanna say more about standard reference data? I don't think so. So going on to experience that we have at our thermodynamics research center, which is based in, in Boulder, Colorado, they have agreements with a number of journal publishers to review data uh, submitted in articles and um, they have a number of heuristics they run in order to identify if uh, data are not being well characterized, uh, if there are problems with uncertainties, uh, even if they're just typos in data tables. And it's really quite remarkable that of these uh, six or seven journals, which we have partnerships with, in fully 50% of them, there are data reporting problems that fortunately are identified prior to publication. Um, one of the biggest problems that is encountered is that uncertainties are very poorly characterized or are seriously underestimated. Um, in those journals that we work with in collaboration after the NIST review, the, uh, the rate at which erroneous uh, data is published is, is down to around one half of a percent. But for other journals that we look at and often and also ingest data from, uh, the error rates are much higher, uh, typically five to 6%, but in some journals up to 25%. So there's a, a serious issue with data integrity and trustworthiness that comes from inadequate review of data content in many research publications. Going forward, 
So some observations I have about how to improve trust in data. One is that organizations should have some sort of rigorous internal review process to make sure that data that is being published has passed muster. And at least um, a very big concern for us at NIST is, is uncertainty characterization. That review should be impartial. It should be done by people who are familiar with the field but are not vested in the outcome and getting the paper published. One virtue of increasingly open data and fair data is that it becomes much easier to make comparisons between data sets and expose those that have poor quality. And as I just mentioned, our thermodynamics research center experience where we have collaboration between domain experts and publishers leads to much higher quality data being uh, uh, published. We also need to extend our capabilities in domain-based data repositories where uh, data experts can contribute, contribute to data quality through knowledgeable curation. My experience prior to coming to NIST and managing the Virtual Astronomical Observatory, in that case, we really uh, relied on what I call reputation-based data quality. The community in astronomy is, is small enough that people know who can be trusted in their data publications and who needs to be uh, more carefully scrutinized. It turns out this also pertains to much larger research fields such as material science, where again, reputation is, is uh, paramount in terms of uh, determining who is uh, uh, producing trustworthy data and, and who is not. And ultimately what we need is full transparency of the research data record, not only the data, but the software and the methods in order to improve the, the multiple R's in this space, reproducibility, repeatability, replicability, and rigor of research data. That's what I have to say. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Koskula, and I'm going to talk about some um, different projects, more on a project base and cyber infrastructure security. Next slide. So the first project I want to talk about was, is a NSF funded project that um, aggregated environmental data. Um, data One was funded for five years and and then following another five years. But in the first five years, um, they uh, the work for this project was done by 11 working groups. And one of these working groups that was there from the very beginning was a federated security working group. And the idea behind this is without trust, trusted data, um, it's hard to have a community that will use your services and trust requires security and reliability. Um, during the first five years, uh, Data One had the Center for Trustworthy Scientific Cyber Infrastructure do an audit of um, the architecture and um, the services they provided. And this actually um, helped a lot with the funding for the next five years because this had been built in from the first, from the very beginning of the project. 
And because of the audit, we actually had an external source that could um, certify um, how security was built in to the data one project. Next slide. So um, this particular, the core trust seal cohort was something that was funded through um, a grant from, um, and AGU in order to, um, the cohort started out with the EarthCube um, Council of Data Facilities. And what the cohort did was to bring together different repositories so that they could share information as they applied for the core trust seal. In addition, it also paid um, the fee that is necessary to submit an application. And what we found out by having this cohort together, it is extremely, it's, it's nice to have people to talk to about their experiences in going through uh, the core trust seal. Core trust seal is even if people don't submit the application by going through all the different aspects, and one of these is security, is it allows um, the domain repository to actually check to see that they are paying attention to all the things involved in a certification. That all of the aspects of the core trust seal um, guidance don't have to be done, but you have to be able to document where you are, whether you're aware of it, you're planning it, or it's already um, in place. Um, so one of the things with um, NSF funded repositories, it's becoming the repositories when they're recompeted, it's they're more successful if they actually have core trust seal certification. It's another um, item in their favor. And next slide. So um, Research Data Alliance is um, a global organization um, that works on um, building the bridges, both um, social and technology um, to make data reusable and shareable, findable, essentially fair. Um, there are many different groups in the Research Data Alliance that are working on security. Um, it started all the way back in the plenary in uh, plenary three in Dublin. And that was the focus of that plenary was um, actually what is needed to have a data sharing community. And there were groups that got started at this plenary on uh, fair data and trust and security. Um, Sandra is the co-chair of the virtual research environment and in the, during their meetings at plenaries, um, security is one of the things that they talk about. Um, and actually the core trust seal is a product of Research Data Alliance. It was put together, the idea for the core trust seal was put together by an RDA um, world data system working group. Um, other groups um, that deal with uh, security and trusted data are the sustainability of e-research um, and cyber infrastructures, and there's a data fabric interest group. 
Um, in addition, the domain repository um, interest group came up with the trust principles. And the trust principles are um, transparency, responsibility, user focus, sustainability, and technology. And they have put together um, the principles and documented these and different groups, libraries, projects, um, organizations can sign on to these principles. So one of the ways to, um, an important way to have for domain repositories to have gained the trust of their community is to actually go through the certification and have it done by an outside group. Um, that's it. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you, Sandra, Bob, and uh, Rebecca for, for those intro remarks. And so we'll now we'll move over to panel mode. And uh, we do have a question from David Wheeler, one of our participants. So um, Jeanette, uh, is it possible to unmute Dave and have him ask his question? There he is. Dave, can you, you might be able to unmute yourself. Yes. If you're still there. So I think we should read the question. Um, what options are available for accessing legacy data that may be HIPAA controlled uh, when the original application may not be available? So I guess that was a comment for the easy emulation. Yes, apologies. Yeah. That was during your portion of the presentation. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, the HIPAA controlled data, so it's not that the emulation um, accesses the data or stores the data itself. That means uh, if it's HIPAA controlled, um, the owner sent it to the emulation service. <laughs> As far as I know, so I, I only that is what I've seen. They don't store it. They really give you the option to to see the data, and then you can save it in a format and take it away from them like, directly. There, of course, are some steps behind that they can see more data because there has to be an administrator of, of the system. But that is like having a administrator on a Linux system. So if you have the access to the data and it's HIPAA control and you are the one who's, who's allowed to use it, then it fulfills it. So it's, it's a system, I don't think they have the official HIPAA um, stamp on it yet, but if they go into these cases, I'm sure they will get it quite easily because they are not storing the data. They're not um, touching the data at all. They're starting a software showing the data to, to the user. I think also um, the, the repositories can, uh, the, the different repositories can play a really important role in setting standards for removing personally identifying information from, from HIPAA data so that it can be shared under different regimes. I, I'm, I'm looking right now at the, NIH DB gap uh, policy for submission there as, as another interesting example. Um, uh, Bob or Rebecca, anything to add on that topic? I try to stay away from data that has that kind of information. In it, so. <laughs> <laughs> 
there are concerns. I will say, um, I, I work on a uh, subcommittee of the OSTP uh, on open science, and a number of federal agencies are concerned about how data by itself is benign, and, and they're happy to share it, but it might be used in combination with other data sets and end up de-anonymizing or worse even perhaps uh, revealing um, you know, properties of materials or whatever that are subject to um, you know, our, our um, security issue for the country. So that's another area of, of ongoing concern. So the question, when, when I read the question, it's, it talked about um, accessing the data when the original application is not available. So another good practice within repositories is to save the data in a non-proprietary um, me mechanism after removing all the identifiable information and making sure that you can share it openly. But um, maintaining data sets in proprietary format is not good for the long term. Yeah. And I think, um, uh, Sandra, in, in your work, uh, you really value um, storing the software alongside the data. Um, and so does it help if the, the software is provided in a, in a container format or a, like a, a notebook, like a Jupyter notebook? Does that also help with accessing different data formats or um, what, what, are the, what are some other aspects around um, accessibility of data when, it, uh, uh, when you need access to the, the software to, uh, to reproduce it? Well, it depends more also on the science gateway, on the concepts behind the science gateways themselves. For example, HubZero has their own repository. They have their own containers to make sure that really the software is in a version there that it can be reused and that it can be shared. A lot of uh, science gateways do it that way, like um, Galaxy, you can share toolboxes. And so um, I think that really reproducibility has a lot of also, <laughs> let's say a little bit of uh, um, little gaps there with the containerization. Containerization, I, I think it's a great step to start with reproducibility. But if you ever have tried to get a um, Docker container from Linux to Windows, you know what it means that it's not directly reproducible. <laughs> so that is the other step I still think we haven't really solved it yet. So what we do in Presquity, for example, we, we save a lot of the information, what kind of tools are there, but we are not so the tools can be, if the user decides to transfer the tools with the information, the tool will be there in a Beckett um, zip file. But um, if the user decides not to transfer the tool and only the result data or input data, it, so it, it's a user decision in Presquity. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, and I, I, I take your point that the containers are not a panacea. There's still a lot of a lot of details to work out there. I, I love them. Don't, don't they solve a lot of problems? But they don't solve a problem I might have in ten years too. You know. <laughs> so um, so Bob uh, had a good list of four R's on uh, on one of his slides: reproducibility, repeatability, replicability, and rigor. 
And so I want to get all uh, of the panelists to comment on um, how those four R's impact the trustworthiness of scientific data and, and uh, maybe have some comments about you know, uh, how to distinguish between reproducibility and, and replicability, um, but, but generally uh, the, how, to, how to think about those four R's with respect to um, trustworthy data. So maybe we'll go, uh, we'll start with Rebecca, then Bob, then Sandra, how about that? So for replicate, replicating data, that's actually a way to protect it, to have multiple copies. And that is different than reproducibility, but that will ensure that the data are someplace that can be accessed. Um, reproducibility is probably one of the hardest ones and in FAIR. Um, the I and the R are the two that are really difficult to do. Um, you can, I, I think what's really important for uh, reproducibility is to make sure that you have tools that can save the provenance along the way so that you understand how the particular data you're using came to be. What, what were the modifications? What was used to get it to the current state? Uh, rigor, absolutely needed for all the other, just to make sure that you're paying attention. And that goes back to what Bob said about reputation. So let me, um... So you know, NIST is, is, of course, the National Metrology Institute of the United States. Metrology is the science of measurement. So these, these words actually have um, official definitions in the metrology world. Um, replicability or repeatability is an individual, uh, the ability of an individual science team to get the same and consistent results day after day. Replicability is whether another science team using the same or similar equipment can get the same results. And reprodu reproducibility is a bigger concept, which is if I um, come to some scientific conclusion with some particular method, can that same conclusion be reached by a totally independent method? So there are different levels uh, in, the, in the whole um, area of rigor and rigor sort of is the is the term that sort of wraps up all of those things. We at NIST are very concerned with all of these topics because we measure things very carefully. We know what time it is to within one second in the age of the universe, which is pretty good, which means that uh, we start all of our meetings at NIST exactly five minutes late. So um, these are, I think though, really critical in terms of building a system of trust for, for scientific data. You have to know where you are in this space of repeatability, replicability, and reproducibility. Yeah, and from science gateway point of view, also for example with rigor, or also from the prescriptive point of view, it's, it starts already with a fixity. It, it's really, if you transfer data between systems or share data, and yes, Wi-Fi gets better, internet gets better, the connections are better, but it's still, we had, for example, the situation that data was transferred to, to a tape station and one byte was moved. So the data was not readable anymore. It was, it was really, even so the researcher did the right way and said, oh yes, I really I want a backup for it and I want to it stored. 
Yes, so we have to start already for rigor, also really the physical fixity of files and really make sure that that there's no defect there. And then it comes, of course, to a totally different aspect. So ScienceGate is a good opportunity to do research, share your research and share the methods to do it. So if somebody doesn't really understand the methods, might use the methods in, in the wrong way and have wrong conclusions out of it. So it's really important not only to describe the method and have the correct methods in the science gateway for our use case, but also to make sure that, that they're using it for, for the intention mm -hmm. and that it's not something, because it gets easier now to use some methods or to access HPC or to access workflow, computational workflow, that there is research that is not correct. So there must be a little bit of, not a little bit only, there must be a verification between the theory behind that, that is really in this research and, and the methods which I used. And if we are sure about that, and then, yeah, I, I repeat almost what Rebecca and Bob already said, but then the next step can be, yeah, we can repeat a, a, a method, a computational workflow. We can do it also in a different group, maybe with the same data, with the same methods. Um, but then reproducibility is really the big concept. It's a different environment using the theory, the methods, um, and then for different data and different really observations and experiments. So it, it's from rigor, rigor is the basis to get all the other topics. I think that that leads us um, into a question about how we communicate the trustworthiness of the data for the, the consumers of the data. So, um, uh, uh, we talked about um, standards on the data repository like Core Trust Seal, um, uh, uh, associating provenance with the data, so um, so you can assess its trustworthiness that way. Also, and uh, as Sandra just mentioned, um, uh, having information about the the data so that the consumer of the data can use it appropriately to uh, apply the correct scientific methods to that data. So, I'm, I'm interested in additional comments from the panelists on on this topic of. Um, for the data consumers, how do we effectively communicate to them about the trustworthiness qualities of the data? Provenance, provenance, metadata, metadata. Um, I mean, this is an area that Rebecca and, and Sandra both have worked in for, for a very long time. Um, you have to say what it is. And you know, if, you're, if your measurements are good to 10%, say they're good to 10%. Mm. If they're good to 1% uh, or 0.1%, if you say what it is and you are a reputable source of, of data, then people will know if, it, if that data is useful for them, if it's fit for purpose. Um, but if you don't say anything, then the consumer, is, you know, consumer beware because um, you don't know what you're getting and, and what its quality is. Yeah, another aspect I think we have nowadays, luckily, we, we have really this open science movement and open sharing. I think that helps already a lot when people are contributing data, if they're allowed to. I know, of course, with HIPAA and all the different <laughs> rules, there's data we cannot share the same way in an open way. 
um, at least not all the raw data. But I think it's really important. Um, the open sharing already adds really value besides the metadata, what Bob said, um, and all the additional information and the provenance. And I think also really helping people to make more comments. I, I think we run in trustworthy data always also in the problem that there's manual work. We, we cannot totally take it away from the users. We, we can help as far as possible. So that is one of the goals of Presquity, really to add as much as possible automatically, do keyword enhancements, do the fair testing. But we are still relying on people looking onto it like, oh, is this really the field? Is this really the theory I want to connect with, for example, this data? And this manual step, even with machine learning, <laughs> I think we are not at that stage yet to say, oh yeah, we can just run it through and then it does everything in the way that it's um, correctly, let's say, tagged and all the meta information. So I think that is still a big topic that that we need to get the community the word out. Yes, it, it's annoying to do documentation. I say it as a programmer also. <laughs> Don't like it. I know it's it's really, you know, you have to do it. It's just the way to do it. So and the same is for researchers. We try to make it easier that they can document easy but they have to find the right way to do it or the right words to add. So I think the completeness of the metadata is extremely important. It's not just superficial um, title, um, key, a few keywords, whatever thrown in. It's very important that there, the metadata is complete and that it is machine actionable. It's not enough for a human to be able to read it. So I think, um, one of the problems is, is that often, especially with older data, the researchers did not start out with the idea that they, it would be shared. So the repositories that actually have curation services so they can go back and actually add to the completeness of the meta metadata adds to the trustworthiness of a repository and the data that is stored within it. And one thing we're trying to do at NIST in this regard is to is uh, having data be born fair so that metadata from the instrument or from the computer simulation are recorded at the time that the data are being born and are carried along for the life of that of, of, of the data. If you try to annotate it after the fact, it's not going to work, it's going to be wrong, it's going to be incomplete and so forth. So what the only thing you really can't capture now from, from modern instrumentation is the intent of the experimenter. Why are they doing this? <laughs> um, but if you can capture that also with the very front end, I put my sample in for this reason, and this is what I'm looking for, then you get a, a full picture along with the automated metadata capture. We've got a question in the chat from Jacob. How can we be assured that the R's are done correctly? <laughs> and that's got me thinking about incentives for the scientists and the the roles that uh, that the different part uh, the different players play. Uh, Rebecca mentioned the repositories helping to uh, 
help with the completeness of the metadata. And Bob, he, he talked about the, the peer review process, including data and including the data quality there. And, and, and Sandra, you talked about tools also making it easier for the, the data scientists to, um, to capture all this information. So I wonder what, uh, what additional thoughts do y'all have on assuring that the, the processes are being followed and also incentivizing it? Well, I can talk a little bit about the incentives. Um, another group that I am working with is a National Academy uh, Board on improving incentives for sharing data. And there, you know, we, we now have uh, digital object identifiers for data, which are great because data can be cited and data site. But we need to start changing the reward system and the, and the um, promotion and tenure processes to recognize that producing quality data sets uh, is difficult, uh, but it is really important and it will increase your profile as a, as a researcher. So that recognition aspect, the, the carrot more than the stick is, is a very important aspect of this. Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree to the incentives. We really have to do something there. The other thing is um, the experience I make over the years now is that people who did run in the typical, let's say typical situation, a project is three going on for three years, no, you know, storing of data in repositories or something. It's, you know, on different laptops. And then the one PhD student who has the overview over everything is finished with the PhD and nobody knows anywhere where the data is. So I think this example, so I talk about it several times when I talk with people about preservation and talk to colleagues. And then they're like, yeah, okay. Okay, I, I will invest more time at the beginning. <laughs> it is, I, I think we, we have to distribute really also the war stories. And a lot of um, colleagues I have really in, in teaching, when they hear about the PhD student situation, half of them say, it didn't happen yet to me, but you're right, it would happen to me if, you know, if something comes now in between. So I, I think between the quantitative and qualitative, we have to get the word out. I think by having different agencies require a data management plan, um, it's, it's not quite a stick, but it certainly is an incentive to actually pay attention to the data. And there have been many different um, groups have come up with correct ways to cite data, as well as having journals that are dedicated to just data. So being able to publish a data paper also helps with as an incentive. I think we have a next question from Alyssa. Uh, yeah. So, oh, please go right ahead. So I'm trying to ask her to unmute. Alyssa, can you unmute? Oh yeah. Um, hi. Um, I I uh, I'm Alyssa from Georgetown University. I I came in late, so I don't know if this has been talked about or not. Um, you know, we all face the same challenges. Like you know, it's it's not just about the 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 raw data that's actually the condition around how the data is generated or the metadata, and then you know the purpose. With the purpose, I think is a little. Um, 
uh, researchers would be a little reluctant, basically, like and reveal their thought and what they're trying to prove or disapprove. Um, so that's that that, that probably uh, you know kind of has IP related with, but then the metadata, um, and then also you know it's it's very hard to enforce. Um, the capture of the metadata, you know, with the graduate students and postdocs. Um, so I'm just wondering if if the other way would be easier to enforce the instrument vendors to, you know, give them a set of standards and requirements that they have to build in the instruments. So when raw data gets generated, um, certain things are embedded like you know in in the data that that's that you know so when other people look at the data at least they can actually know the the condition under which the data is generated so that way it helps with the reproducibility um, as well well this is near and dear to my heart thank you so much because <laughs> We are, we are working on uh, laboratory information management systems at NIST that do metadata capture directly at the instrument. But right now we have to parse vendor proprietary formats and extract those metadata out into open formats. Another hobby horse of mine is, can we get government agencies to require as a condition of purchase of a piece of equipment that the vendor provides data in an open format, uh, standard format with, uh, with standard metadata fields. So um, I'm trying to push that agenda with the subcommittee for open science and with other organizations, because I think it's really critical to this whole field of, of trustworthiness of data. Thank you for that question very much. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's also so my experience of from bioinformatics in some fields was, oh yes, we all agree to, to this one format. So the vendors said, yeah, we do it in PDB. Great, then you look in detail and they do their own PDB. So I'm totally also with you there. I would be very happy if the vendors have to follow the formats really directly how they are defined and not do their own vendor specific additionally format and call it the same way, which makes it very confusing at the beginning because I didn't find at the beginning then the information I looked for. And then I was like, okay, it's not really the same like the official. So I'm also totally with you there. Yes, I think vendors should be asked to, to provide the format in a way that it's from each vendor the same. And I, I agree with both um, Sandro and Bob. And I know that Bob is working on um, a committee or a working group to make this happen. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping he'll be success successful. <laughs> Great, thanks. Thanks, Alyssa, for that question. So um, I'm watching the clock. We've got just a couple of minutes left. So I, I think I'll just ask our panelists uh, if they have any concluding remarks before we wrap, wrap up. And so maybe we'll... Uh, We'll go in our original order uh, with um, Sandra, then Bob, then Rebecca. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was very interesting to, to see all the talks of Rebecca and Bob, and thank you for sharing all your thoughts on it. 
And yeah, what is also near to my heart is really sharing data, open science. I think that is the right way to go also to, to make data more trustworthy. As soon as you share it openly, you put more emphasis on, on meta information or on metadata on information and on documentation. And I think that that is a good way to go. Everybody be as fair as possible. F-A-I-R, I think everybody knows that acronym by now. And uh, let's reward our good citizens in research who are data sharing. Um, and let's put pressure on instrument vendors uh, when you buy something, say, I need an open format. So the Research Data Alliance is actually a good place um, to go to find out what is being done on all these topics globally, not just within the United States. Uh, there are lots of groups working on the building blocks to make data fair, so check it out. Great, um, and we didn't get a chance to talk about the, the RDA COVID-19 work that, that's been uh, really valuable. Um, so that I recommend the people especially check that out. But. Um, uh, so uh, thank you, uh, attendees, for, uh, for your participation, for your questions. Thank you very much to the panelists for joining us today. And so I think at this point, I'll turn it back over to Jeanette. I think she'll have a survey for us and some con concluding remarks. Hi, everybody. Um, just a few uh, community updates before we wrap things up. Uh, this is our final presentation for the year. Um, but that does not mean the webinars are ending. Um, we are kicking off 2021 with a Trusted CI webinar on Monday, January 25th at 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, our topic is Psi tokens. So Jim Basney will be pivoting to his other responsibilities re related to Psi tokens. So he, he will be presenting on that. And then um, around February 2021, you should see uh, notifications of Trusted CI accepting applications for engagements in the second half of of this coming year. Um, and so you can find more information about that uh, at trustedci.org application. And then uh, to view presentations, join announcements, um, the announcements mailing list, submit requests to present, et cetera, uh, you can visit trustedci.org webinars, or you can email us feedback at webinars at trustedci.org. Um, and with that, I think we will be um, closing our presentation. Um, thanks again, everyone for um, attending this presentation. I will be posting and and again, our panelists, thank you very much for your presentations and um, your contributions. Um, I will be posting a video of this uh, hopefully later today. So um, feel free to share with your colleagues. And with that, I think I'll, I'll close things. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs>